Yeah, I'll figure it out. Um, anyway, um, we're going to be looking at what we're calling people problems um, in Titus chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. Um, and in many ways, though, we come to the centerpiece um, of this uh, letter to Titus um, from the Apostle Paul, obviously inspired by um, the Lord. Uh, verse 8 is what many call the, the summary command of the entire book. Um, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to vote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Um, not surprisingly, uh, you've probably realized the theme of this book in so many ways is good works. Paul returns to that theme one more time. Um, but um, before we really start to break it all down, let's stand out of reverence respect for the Word of God. And let's read our entire text for the day, which is uh, just four verses. Um, Titus 3, beginning in verse 8, reading through verse 11. That same summary statement there in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You may be seated. Now, we start with, uh, I think, the more important thing, which is concerning our confession. We're going to see concerning our confession and then concerning controversy as we move into the people problems. Um, but we really start with this summary command. Um, I don't think we can understand Paul's emphasis today if we don't start with the right foundation. Um, when Paul writes to Titus and the church there, or the churches in the region, um, and says the saying is trustworthy um, there in verse 8. Um, by context, it's very, very clear what he's referring to. Um, this section is written in light of verses 4 through 7 that we studied last week. It's that um, one-sentence restatement, um, not just of the gospel, but of all the theological ramifications of the gospel. And in fact, I believe um, it's crucial not just to what we looked at last week, but again, it's the foundation for this week's text. Um, and in general, just for our lives as believers in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. Um, I know up, down, up, down, but this is good exercise, you know. So um, this is important. Um, if you have your sermon outlines on the back, I've, I've written down or... Um, Abby has graciously um, typed up um, the ESV translation of this, uh, and I'm going to ask you to, to read it with me this time. All right, I'll get us started, and then let's read this together. Um, it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You may be seated. It's a beautiful passage. It just is, and it's so... Um, richly describes the gospel. And so we start with the gospel this morning. It's foundational um, to this text. It's the centerpiece of this letter. It's the centerpiece of, of the entire Word of God and really the work of Christ. Have you personally experienced His goodness 
and his loving kindness um, through the salvation that you're being offered um, through Christ dying on the cross in your place to pay for your sins. Do you realize he offers it to you out of mercy and grace, um, not out of any effort of your own to try to earn it? He is our Savior, and we're justified freely by his grace and his grace alone, his death on the cross, uh, again, to pay for our sins. So do you know him? It's, it's crucial because everything we're going to look at from here and really everything we looked at prior to this point, it all flows out of the answer to that question. Do you know him? Have you been saved and redeemed? If you have been, uh, you're an heir according to the hope of eternal life, and there's nothing better on this side or the other side of eternity, okay? And so in a sense, you have, you have the biggest question answered the right way, and you can be at peace. Um, if you've not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, again, you're going to have that opportunity, and not just today in these moments, not just when we do an invitation, um, but as you go about your day, um, all it simply takes is a moment where you confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, you trust in what Christ has done, and you ask him to save you and redeem you. Um, that moment of brokenness can change your life. And so you have that opportunity, again, not just during the message, but as time goes on. But let's break down the rest of our text in light of this, this truth, all right? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. It's just a beautiful, simple reminder that the truth changes us, that it, it changes us daily. It changes us minute by minute. Um, the Orthodox preacher from Titus on down through the ages must proclaim uh, the truth with confidence, and I believe ringing uh, certainty. Insist on these things. Well, what things are we talking about? Okay, well, we're talking about verses 4 through 7. Okay, now there's a lot of things that we could stand here and talk about and even insist upon, and the Word of God is broad. It covers a lot of territory, but what he's saying is the Orthodox preacher must keep his eyes on the foundation of the gospel, first and foremost. Everything flows out of the gospel. The gospel is trustworthy. It is beautiful. It is life-changing. It is world-changing. Um, these truths of the gospel are the anchors of any good church and any good preacher and, and any good Christian, let's be honest about it, they're the centerpiece of all that God is doing in our lives, all right? And, and so as the old saying goes, and, and it, this, to me this statement is so familiar, I don't know who to attribute it to, but this book and the truths of this book and the anchors of the gospel will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. You kind of have to decide. Um, it's one way or the other. Um, and, and has also, I believe, often been said, and rightly so, we need to re-preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Uh, it, is, it is our anchor. It's the path that we walk. Um, we need to refresh these truths in our, our minds and our hearts on a daily basis. It's one of the reasons why I believe um, you should hear the gospel every single Sunday um, that you come to First Russellville. It should be clear. Um, it should be obvious. It should be emphasized size it should be exalted it's it's what we do okay now again it's not just the gospel um, but uh, the gospel is the centerpiece of it but these beautiful truths are trustworthy and we should insist on teaching these things okay now let me ask you though in our generation how's that going in churches um, pastor by pastor. Um, how, many, how many churches are there left? How many pastors are there left that are making the gospel the centerpiece of what they do on Sunday? It, it chills me a little bit to think that, that you can turn on TV and even some of the channels that boast about being Christian in orientation and you may not hear a passage preached in which the gospel is exalted. 
You, you may hear some, something else. I, I don't want to speculate too much. You may hear some really good stuff. Don't get me wrong. There's lots of uh, fine stuff out there. But I, I do believe we're living in a day and age when you have to look for the gospel. Um, you have to search for it because it's not always there. Um, and let's be honest about this too. Um, the churches and the preachers that are continuing to preach the gospel um, as certain truths and insisting on these things, what does the culture have to say about them? Um, I think it's a question worth asking. Um, Acts 20, um, verse 27, Paul kind of gives you his ministry um, position. It, it backs up this text, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's what uh, a preacher, a pastor, not just an evangelist, but it's what um, any real teacher of the Word of God should be anchored upon. It was his ministry motto, um, and, and we should walk in the same path. And you should select a church um, based upon uh, whether or not they're walking in the same path. Um, too many today are abandoning the historic confessions to our own shame. And, and that, of course, disrupts everything that Paul is emphasizing uh, about this summary statement. So we, we start with the truth, but we continue to this, which is the test. Uh, the saying is trustworthy. The gospel, um, the anchors of the gospel is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. As we saw clearly last week with the gospel, it's not dependent on our works. Um, our salvation is a gift, but true salvation should change us. Any church that accurately preaches the truth should produce believers who are careful to devote themselves to good works. It should be an outflow um, of a sincere encounter with Christ and an understanding of the gospel. Again, not, not for salvation, but simply as a part of, of what it means to conform ourselves to the truth. You come to know Jesus, then you day in and day out, you begin to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that should result in good works. Um, there should be a change there. Philippians 2, uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, uh, obedience is a part of the Christian life. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not saying you work to earn your salvation. In a sense, you, you work and prove your salvation. For it is God who works in you. It's authored by Him. It's the power of His Spirit, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Uh, there's such beauty and balance there. It balances uh, good works, but it's good works authored by God. Um, he's the power behind it. He works in us. It's for His good and His glory as well. Um, we need to make sure the things we're doing, um, they meet His standards. They meet the Word of God. They're led by the Spirit of God. Uh, but again, the question becomes very, very simple. Friends, do, do other people see the goodness of God in our lives? If we never do anything um, for our community, for the culture, for uh, the lost, for um, family members, if, if we don't serve others, then what are they seeing? I think is the question we have to ask. The best test of whether or not we're being exposed to the truth and we're allowing it to work in our lives through the, the Holy Spirit is whether or not we're producing good works. So Paul says, insist on these things. Affirm them constantly. Uh, the Holy Spirit never gets tired, and He is the fuel behind what we should be doing. So we shouldn't get tired. Do we have a present, ongoing, personal relationship with God? If we do, there will be an expression of it through good works, even in a broken culture. I, I would argue, especially in a broken culture. 
If God is good, and, and yes, I would argue that verses 4 through 7 of Titus are very, very good. They're beautiful. They're life-changing. And, and God is not just good, but He is far, far greater than anything we can possibly imagine or comprehend. If, if all that's true, then we should be different. Anybody willing to say amen to that? Um, again, we should be different, not because we want to be, not because we work it up. No, 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 you, you yield to the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, and, and He should transform you, and there should be fruit produced question becomes though but are we is is this really true of us all right well let's wrap up this summary statement um the truth the test the trust um these things are excellent and profitable for people do you believe that See, again, we have a culture that says you should not be telling other people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's judgmental, and, and you're saying your way is the only way. It's proselytizing. Uh, you can't do that. Don't bring that in here. But Paul says these things that we're talking about today, the foundation of our faith, the beauty uh, of the gospel, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, who does he mean by people? Everybody. The lost the saved, uh, the broken, the beaten, the battered, the, the ones on top, the ones on bottom. It doesn't matter what culture. It doesn't matter what community. It doesn't matter what ethnicity. It doesn't. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It doesn't get any better than this church. So you can come up with your political solutions. You can listen to the wokeism and you can listen to the far right. You can listen to whatever you want, but nobody else has solutions that are excellent and profitable for everybody. Only Jesus Christ and the Word of God does. So what should we preach and teach? Well, let's stick to this, amen? Let's stay right here. This is the truth. And here's the reality. Because these things are excellent and profitable for people, because the gospel is so good and beautiful, we've been entrusted with a responsibility to share the benefits of these things with others. This is what we as believers in Christ, forgiven and redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, this is what we actually owe others. Even if they don't appreciate if they don't participate in our appreciation of the gospel. Uh, Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And again, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but yet I, I think too few preachers are at this point. We're living in a culture that says, well, you can be a Christian, but keep it to yourself. Wrong. That is not what God's word says. So if you're listening to that, if you get angry when we preach and teach and, and share the gospel, when we go outside these walls and we stand on biblical values and, and we continue to try to move people toward Jesus, when we look like a church both here and out there, if that bothers you, you're not listening to the word of God. It's the culture that says, keep it to yourselves. It's not the word of God that says that. So we've got to decide who we're going to listen to. The gospel should ennoble us. It, it should give us a growing concern for the world around us. And we express this through good works, even if the world around us is undeserving, you might say. But here's the reality. We were all undeserving before Jesus made us new. And so yet again, this letter from Paul returns to the issue of combining faith and practice. He simply didn't believe you could divorce belief from behavior. And yes, our broken culture has popularized the falsehood that you can love Jesus and yet live any which way you want. But everything about the letter to Titus condemns that error. You're either going to conform to Christ or you're going to conform to the culture. 
And you know, one of the things I, I think I can say that I'm, I'm, I'm done dealing with, if you're inside the walls of this place and you don't want us to stand on biblical truth, we're not having any more conversations, okay? I'm, I'm kind of tired of that. Anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to listen to what God's Word says, um, and we're going to respond to His truth. We're going to live it out, even in a fallen culture. It's what we're going to do. Um, we've looked at the, the truth and the, and the test and the trust here. A vital Christianity unites the beautiful and the profitable, and not just now, but hear me on this, later. Uh, it's part of what Paul means when he says it's profitable, He's said enough in previous letters and ways for us to understand that the gospel, hear me on this because we've experienced this, the gospel does not always pay off on this side of eternity. I mean, it does in the sense of you're saved and redeemed and, and that's your biggest need is to be forgiven and brought into relationship with God. But here's the reality. I'll admit to you that if, if you cling to the truth of God's word and you preach it and you teach it and, and you move into sharing it with a broken culture, the culture may not always, may not always respond in a beautiful, fashion it may cause conflict you may lose relationships but here's the reality that doesn't mean the gospel's unprofitable because the good news is the bulk of the gospel's profit for the souls of men is going to come in eternity future we're just we're, we're living in the in the shortness of time right now these days are fleeting and they're going to pass and then we're going to be with the the lord forever and here's the reality the gospel is profitable for all days and so we need to stand on that, and we need to understand that. And if that means that for a period of time right now, um, it can be a little bit tough, then big deal. Eternity's a lot longer than right now. So how, how are we doing? We've been entrusted with beautiful truths. Are we passing the test? If we aren't doing well, I believe the next three verses will probably help us understand why. Um, so let's press on into today's text. We've looked at concerning our confession. Now we look at concerning controversy. Now, Paul has mentioned false teachers before in this letter, so it isn't surprising that he would return to the subject as he's wrapping up his admonitions to Titus. Um, but also, I, I think we should see this list of controversial things as um, the enemy of good works. You can either do good works or you can argue about things that don't matter. That's kind of, I think, the way Paul means for us to see this. These are the kinds of things that distract churches from the real mission. Um, just as we're supposed to boldly proclaim the beautiful truths of the gospel, um, we need to stay anchored to the truth, refuse to get divided by controversy and secondary issues. Um, and so it's a beautiful contrast, I, I think, between the value of correct doctrine um, and, and foolish, unprofitable, and worthless things. Those are words Paul uses. And, and ultimately, I believe effective spiritual leadership in a broken culture should do all things with compassion but never fail to confront controversy when necessary uh, but we break it down he, he starts with controversial issues um, but avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions quarrels about the law uh, for they're unprofitable and worthless now 
first, before we try to understand the dynamics of everything Paul is listing here, um, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, uh, let's not miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. Um, we need to understand that um, God's Word is practical for every generation. Uh, it doesn't go out of style. It doesn't need to be reinterpreted by the current culture. So please understand that as the groundwork of what I'm about to say. But I think we should be able to agree that the church today might have a different set of foolish controversies than Paul and the church at Crete did at the time. Okay, um, I, I'm not saying these controversies weren't real. They were, all right? Um, but I suspect the enemy's pretty clever. He can come up with new stuff based upon the new culture. Um, but one way or the other, I think there's still things that churches debate that are unprofitable and worthless, right? I think that's the point of this. We may not necessarily have the same series of problems, but we have problems. So understanding the passage, I think, is less about knowing what Paul was wrestling with um, than just knowing not to get caught up in contemporary repeats of the same problem. Um, he probably could not have imagined that we would live in a culture where um, people would literally be confused about whether or not they were born male or female. Um, anyway, sorry. Um, let me not give you examples, all right? I, I could go down that road. How about this? Avoid foolish controversies. Okay, well, what would you list as a foolish controversy, you know, for the, the church today? Again, that's where I think maybe the list would be a little bit different, um, but I, I don't want to narrow your thinking by providing you with the list of things that I think should fit this grid in 2023. What do you think? Okay, um, and, and remember the, the simple admonition here. We should pursue good works and accordingly avoid unprofitable controversies, all right? 2 Timothy 4, um, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, um, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. He'll turn, um, will turn away from listening to the truth, wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of, the, of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. This is a perfect complement to this passage, again, inspired by God, penned by the same apostle. Um, but let's, let's break down the text just a little bit, and maybe we can flesh these bones out. Um, first, he starts by emphasizing the unwise. Well, how can we know what a controversial issue is? Well, I think his phrasing kind of tells us, again, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies. Okay, it doesn't say there aren't some controversies that should be dealt with, right? Okay, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Foolish controversies and questions are some of the devil's favorite tricks to get us sidetracked. And, and that word foolish is a uh, powerful one. Um, it can be rendered unwise, which is what I've done with the outline. Um, but the Greek root is actually moros. Um, you won't believe this, but it is the word from which we draw our modern word moron. Um, I've been accused of using that word too often, but Paul uses it, okay? So, you know, it's all right. Um, it, it's, 
moros, moronic, nonsensical, okay? So don't misunderstand. I, I don't believe Paul is saying, by context certainly, um, that theological discussions are unprofitable or moronic. I mean, you need to understand sanctification and, and you need to understand discipleship and evangelism and mission. I mean, it's not saying don't have those discussions, okay? He's not saying, I would argue, that stands against casinos or abortion are unwise, okay? Nor I think we can agree, even if we're somewhere apart on the spectrum of, of views on such things. They certainly aren't moronic, all right? Lives are in the balance, okay? Sex trafficking and, and abortion, um, it, it steals the future from young women and, and children and, and lives, okay? Those are not moronic things. Wouldn't you agree? Any, are you willing to say amen to that? Okay. Again, you may feel different about things that have happened, this, that, or the other, but I don't think it's moronic. I mean, moronic's a strong word, which is why some of you chastise me when I use that word. Um, maybe I've used it inappropriately. I don't know. Strong word. Paul is referring to things that are pointless. They're distractions. They're waste of times that cause needless conflict. They don't serve anyone's best interests. The kinds of discussions where people involved, honestly, I believe, are more interested in causing confusion than in actually even finding an answer. Um, Warren Wiersbe has wisely noted that in his time in ministry, uh, the people who like to argue about these sorts of things are usually um, covering up some sort of sin issue, and they're unhappy at home, and they just want to bring it into the church and stew the pot up. Um, 2 Timothy 2, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. It's just true. And I know sometimes there, there have been um, a lot of crazy rumors the community likes to spread, and, and some, and I think well intentioned folks are like, you know, you need to address those from the pulpit. If I addressed every moronic thing in our culture, that is all I would do. Anybody willing to give me that? I mean, so we're going to preach and teach the gospel. On occasion, the text is going to move past some of those things, but I can't become a puppet on the string of the people spreading lies and deceit in our community. If you hear something crazy, ask an appropriate person and get a truthful response, okay? Um, because we can't camp out on the moronic. Uh, um, I probably, again, I probably do too much. Anyway, um, Paul does list a couple of things here that can be pretty sure, we can be pretty sure about. Um, he references genealogies and quarrels about the law, um, both things the Judaizers are infamous for. Um, he's addressed them before in this book and uh, obviously elsewhere in the New Testament. The Judaizers like to um, try and boast and justify their positions on theology by tracing their ancestry back to Moses or Joshua or, or David. Um, they like to argue incessantly as well about fidelity to the law, the Old Testament law, every jot and tittle. A law which, let's be honest, is no longer our master but merely a helpful tutor. You know, so I would say if, if you're arguing about things that are not explicitly covered in God's Word, like what kind of movies are appropriate and inappropriate. And I mean, again, I think you should have a standard, okay? But if, if you think you figured it out and everybody else is wrong, then it's starting to become a foolish controversy. Anyway, um, those are the kinds of things that ultra-fidelity of the law would talk about. Um, Christ has completed or fulfilled the law. Our peace with God is found through Christ. The Holy Spirit should be the one leading you and making those kinds of decisions as for you and your house, not our fidelity to the law. 
and even Christians of Paul's generation, um, not just Judaizers, and I would argue even Christians of our generation repeat some of the same crimes, especially when it comes to um, ancestry, so to speak, um, because we boast often about our spiritual genealogy. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. That was happening. He had to address it in 1 Corinthians. Again, I, I don't want to get lost in all the historical research because it can cause us to miss what this text is actually saying about issues of this day, but we repeat some of the same mistakes. What are we needlessly arguing about? What do we debate that is ultimately foolish? First uh, Peter 3.15, But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Knowing our theology has value, being able to answer legitimate questions and defend our positions has value, and we can do it with gentleness and respect, but time spent on foolish or moronic arguments, well, it's just leading to a quarrel, and we need to move on. All right, next we come to unprofitable. Controversial issues, they're, they're unwise and they're unprofitable, okay? They're foolish, um, but he says they're unprofitable and worthless, okay? Um, how else can we see it? I mean, such quarrels, are, they're not beneficial. They don't serve any useful purpose. They're void of, of value and, and results. They're, they're vain. You're just spinning the wheel. Um, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they had to address this back in Acts 14. Um, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. They were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, same word as being used here for unprofitable and worthless, these vain things um, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that is in them. Um, these things are unprofitable. They're wastes of time. Uh, in this case, it was certainly worldly things, um, world religion that had nothing to do with God. Again, we have to know that his words leave room for robust theological debate, um, questions that stimulate growth and discipleship and, and all that, but things that are moronic, unprofitable, worthless, we need to leave them behind. And that could be more easily done if it wasn't for the last thing we zero in on, which is controversial individuals. You got issues, but it tends to be individuals who drive those trains. Verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The word Paul uses here for division is the Greek root for heretic. Okay, uh, so again, it's as strong as moronic, all right? He, he's not pulling punches. He's not talking about little quibbles. Um, the, the Greek word here as well, the, the verb usage, it, it implies that this individual has made a conscious choice, a deliberate choice to be divisive and, and to move people away um, for the authentic gospel. He's painting a picture of someone who's chosen to be divisive. The opinionated propagandist, you might say. As one theologian puts it, someone who can't keep their division to themselves so it spreads like cancer in the church, which is why Paul has to address it in the first place. Again, if, if you have an issue, biblical fashion is you go to the individual. And then if you don't get relief there, then you take one or two witnesses and you have that conversation again. What happens most often in a church setting is somebody gets angry about something. They don't go to the right people, but they go to their neighbor and their friend. And, and they go to anybody and everybody. And pretty soon you've got 30 people talking about a scenario in which they know nothing about it. And they won't go to the right people to deal with the issue. Paul's saying that's how controversy gets started. Let's break it down. It's selfish. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Uh, now, obviously, Paul is giving us a simple uh, but final methodology for dealing with these controversial individuals. And, and again, I would think the text, uh, a fair reading would mean it's not somebody who makes one mistake. Um, it, it's a pattern of behavior, okay? Something that doesn't end. Um, and, and the solution to that is exclusion. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 uh, addresses this very simply and again gives us the biblical model. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Um, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning, you know what the Jews do with Gentiles or tax collectors, they ignore them. They cast them out. Um, that's the way the church should respond to somebody who continually causes division. Now, again, even in, in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, it doesn't mean if you don't like the way they cut their hair or you don't like uh, the way they dress or the, uh, the car they drive. Or, or No, 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 no. You don't get to start a biblical methodology for resolving a problem if you're just being petty, Okay. It doesn't work that way. It says if they've sinned against you, there's got to be a legitimate harm. There has to be a wound. There has to be an issue that needs to be dealt with. All right. Now, the issues in Titus 3, and I think Matthew 18, are, are likely different that's being addressed in context, but the result is the same. If someone is so selfish and bent on division that they refuse to repent or change their behavior when biblically confronted, you're to exclude them. Now, to be honest, we've had to follow this pattern only a few times in my 22 plus years I've been at FBC. The problem tends to be that when we try to handle such individuals, I give you my word that we've always tried to do so discreetly. We've never tried to air everyone's dirty laundry in a public fashion. Here's my heart. I, I want to make sure that Sunday mornings are about the gospel. So if there's an issue and there's a controversy, the right people are going to know. But the reality is I want to shelter the bulk of our church and the community who may be listening to our messages and, and trying to come to know Jesus. I want to shelter them from that. The problem is in our discretion, we talk as little as possible, as, as little as necessary. And we, the people who tend to be the ones causing problems talk all they want. Okay? And they talk to anybody and everybody, and they stir up lots of things. And, and really, the issue becomes, yes, they're stirring up division, and yes, they're meeting with people, and they're twisting the truth, and, and they're trying to justify their behavior and change the narrative. The problem is that the people who listen to them will not come and get the right information. And that's why the controversy is inflamed. You do understand that I'm the only one that gets to speak publicly on a Sunday morning. Do you, I mean, has that ever dawned on anybody? You know, if, if I wanted to just lay the facts out and just blast someone, whether that's biblical or not, I have that power. I don't know if that's ever dawned on anybody. Um, but it's amazing. I don't do that, which should be a reason. Could you trust me just a little bit when you don't think you know everything? Anyway, um, if I wanted to grandstand, I could. I, I'll tell you the truth. There's nothing worse in ministry than being repeatedly lied about by someone determined to cause division over some petty personal issue. And what's worse, honestly, is church members who fall for those stories and never fact check them. Um, anyway, 
enough of that. We're just preaching the passage, so I'm not responding to anything, okay? Um, but when someone goes person to person, when they force people to make a choice between themselves and their pastor, that's a divisive person. And we're to show them the door and have no more to do with them. Um, and Paul says they're self-condemned and their divisive behavior, you cause an issue that has nothing to do with the gospel and you just can't get over it and you stir it and you stir it and you stir it and you stir it. Paul says, well, that's self-condemned and divisive. They've, they've proven who they are because we should be focused on the gospel, right? We need to move on and focus on the gospel. So he says they're self-condemned, verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If you can't tell how blunt that sentence is in English, you're missing it. It's worse in the Greek. Um, warped and sinful is really closer to perverted or twisted. Um, it's not sexual in nature, but the wording evokes that kind of feeling. Um, there's a moral twist to this. These individuals, they're railers, rilers, slanderers. And they're so steeped in their sin that they refuse to repent um, when confronted. And their dogged determination to never give up the fight proves their wickedness. Uh, in their heart of hearts, they likely know it, I, I believe. Um, they're self-condemned. And so we're to avoid them. We're to shun them. Further efforts to reconcile with such an, an individual is poor stewardship, and it simply gives the offender an undeserved sense of importance. You can't reason with an unreasonable person. I, I've tried, and it's just, uh, it's exhausting. And then uh, you, you, you watch them tirelessly work behind your back to justify their provision, position. It becomes perversion, wickedness, or sin. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. Uh, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, understand something in all of this. Yes, it is possible your pastor could be wrong. It's possible that your staff could be wrong. It's possible that leadership could be the one making a mistake. That's why, again, as a church, you get to ask questions. You have to put on your thinking caps. You have to evaluate. And again, I think the greatest test is, is the church focused on the gospel and good works? That's what Paul says. If the church is focused on the gospel and good works, give leadership a little latitude. Um, because those who are stirring up the controversy are self-condemned. And I know this. It's part of the weight that I have to deal with. I know if, if I compromise truth, if I let uh, the, the rare individual who causes this kind of division, if I let them distract us, if they manage to keep us from performing good works and advancing the gospel, then I've made the mistake. I'm responsible. Um, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can spend a lot of time trying to make people happy that do not really care about advancing uh, the right goals of a church. And, and so no one chasing selfish, divisive ends can be allowed to consume our time and, and distract us from our mission. Um, we'd better off, uh, as Paul says, cut your losses, have nothing more to do with them. Once we've tried to call them to repentance biblically and been rebuffed. And I'll tell you this while we're on the subject. If you're here today and you left your previous church because you were in a, a part of division and you didn't get that resolved before you moved on with your spiritual leadership there, you're going to have a hard time moving forward here until you get it cleared up doesn't mean you necessarily have to go back, um, but it means you need to go make things right as best as possible because we're going to try to always keep it as simple as we can 
around here. And as our musicians come, let's look at it again. Titus 3.8, the saying is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I pray if you're here today and you haven't encountered Jesus Christ through the, the gospel truth that you will make that decision today. Otherwise, let's keep our eyes focused on what we've been called uh, to focus on as a church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and doing good works in our community. Let's stand and respond.